Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, right. This is Wednesday, of course. This is the Not As Nostalgia podcast, which means the pot of Yorkshire is on the go. Going to take a, a deep dive into more nostalgic times into the decade that we haphazardly labelled the noughties, the 2000s, and to the football of its time, for the most part, anyway, although we often do stray away from it. We are, of course, a sports social podcast network production now, and everything you see can also be viewed or listened to with your ears on the Sports Social Podcast Network website. This is the Noise Nostalgia Podcast, episode 53. I'm going to take a look at uh, some of your suggestions for the most overrated Premier League strikers ever. And one of the few times where I'm disagreeing with quite a lot of them, so it could be a fun episode in store. We're also going to take a look at something we couldn't do um, last week because we did run out of time, and that is the West Ham of the 2000s and beyond, of course. Let's get stuck straight in to today's show. Remember, of course, if you're enjoying podcasts like these, the ones that we're doing here on What If Football, we do have other podcasts available now on Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash What If Football, where we do great games. We do head to head, of course, we preview and review the the modern day football in action. Do a couple of games each week and take a look at the top five leagues in Europe and of course a couple of your what-if suggestions in a lovely weekly mailbag. So without further ado, let's kick into your suggestions for the most overrated Premier League striker ever. I'm going to start off hot. Remember, these aren't my suggestions. I'll throw a couple of mine in afterwards, but these are mainly fan-led suggestions. And the first one is Harry Kane by James FF and Tari on Twitter, where you can email of the emails you can tweet us at what if underscore youtube so i can see where people might think where harry kane is quote-unquote overrated i think him not winning a single trophy is the usual social media argument in the twitter argument really from people on twitter who don't really sort of see the value in harry kane and to me he's scored enough i think there's a threshold where you can score so much that you become you don't become overrated purely because of the amount of goals that you've scored is just an incredible thing to achieve what Harry Kane's done. And of course, in that as well, he's not a one-dimensional, not two-dimensional footballer. He's become, in the last two or three years at least, 
become more of a complete forward. So if, for example, to use a football manager analogy, before under Pochettino, he was a, an advanced forward. That would be his, that would be his usual role. His five-star role would be advanced forward. And not a lot of players in the modern day, or really any day, really could be a complete forward, which I think is what Harry Kane has sort of moulded himself into under Jose Mourinho. And if that's one of the one of the better things that Mourinho did, so be it whilst he was at Spurs. Of course, there's very few players that you can probably put in this bracket in any age. But today, I think we've got three that are world-class complete forwards. Robert Lewandowski, of course, goes without saying. Erling Haaland and Harry Kane, for me, is one of those. And perhaps I'm sort of lamenting the thing that I'm trying to not suggest. And the fact that me saying that, that he's one of the top three complete forwards of the modern day, is overrating him. But I think, to me, put him with Manchester City, put him with Bayern Munich, he wins a lot. And there's a reason why so many people are fearful that Man City might win um, Harry Kane over into the, or rather Daniel Levy over to the to Eastlands this summer because he would be the missing piece of the jigsaw. If there is a missing piece of the jigsaw at all, I mean, I've got my reservations about that because I think Man City is so much more of a team that I don't think they need that extra number nine, but obviously Harry Kane, that's why people are so worried about Harry Kane, because he can find the goal. He's become a team player in the last two years, so he would fit into the Manchester City mould with how they play football. And if they got Harry Kane for me, and if Kane kept kept fit, there are obviously the last few years, but bit of reservations about his injury history. I think that he would score 40 goals easy. He's scored 40 goals in all competitions once in his career which was uh, 2017-18 maybe, maybe another one, but his goal record is something else. He's hit 20 plus goals every single season, 31, 28, 35, 41, 24, 24, 33, and even with injury worries. So they say he gets in, he does get injured every year, seemingly as his uh, career's progressed. Those numbers, uh, quite frankly, stupid, ridiculous numbers to say, he had a couple of weeks here and there, hamstring, niggles, ankle, niggles. And to put it in perspective, he's a three-times Golden Boot winner in the Premier League. Only Thierry Henry has won it more often. Thierry Henry is the only player in Premier League history to get more than three Golden Boots. So with that Kane's level par with Alan Shearer, and if he does stay in the Premier League, and I think the only way he leaves Spurs, unless out of contract, is to go abroad. But if he does stay in the Premier League, say if he does, say if Man City can sort of somehow get Daniel Levy to commit to terms, probably going to be about 150, 60 million now, isn't it? Then he will beat Alan Shearer's record for me. And we're talking about Alan Shearer much later on as well. I, I think he breaks it even with even just being at Tottenham and we'll be discussing Alan Shearer, like I say, I think in similar terms really than Harry Kane. But first, George Spencer, he suggests Dimitar Berbatov. I can, like Harry Kane, I, like with most things, I can see the rationale behind them. Dimitar Berbatov, I can see the rationale between behind somebody calling him overrated because I think he is perceived as a lazy figure, this aloof figure just plodding around up top and not doing as much, not a complete forward like Harry Kane. By all means, he's more of a, an advanced forward. But for me... His goal record speaks for itself. He's got roughly one in two in England, which is the mark of a, a top centre forward for me. 
people, I think, tend to forget because this was during his time at Manchester United. It wasn't a vintage United Premier League title win in 2011, but he was the Premier League Golden Boot winner in that. Of course, the, he's got that phenomenal hat trick against against Liverpool with the overhead kick. He did score five, admittedly, in one game, um, which sort of swung the Golden Boot in his favour. But in a time where Wayne Rooney was wanting to go elsewhere, seemingly it would have been Chelsea, I imagine, or abroad. Dimitar Berbatov was the man up top with Javier Hernandez, who really steadied the ship during those months where Wayne Rooney was either non-committal or taking a break from the football. And Dimitar Berbatov, to me, he's, he scores some very unique goals. The one against Everton, I, remember, I seem to remember, is like a lofted through ball to Dimitar Berbatov from Paul Scholes. He just drops it down right on his toe end and he, he's fantastic ability for doing that. There's one that does around where I think he was at Fulham, he was definitely playing at Craven Cottage and the ball is like above the stadium and he just it falls down to his toe and it's like he's got the most world's strongest super glue attached to his foot and uh, then you, he carries on with the game. But this one, he got the ball down and he just strokes it about 25 yards out almost from an angle at least and he just caresses it into the bottom corner with the outside of his right foot. And I've never seen anybody do it like that. I've seen people score with the outside of the boot from out the edge of the area or whatever, but none like so nonchalantly. Nonchalant's the best way to describe Dimitar Berbatov. Balls him down to a tee and he was just, he scored these types of finishes that his first one for Manchester United, I remember against Alborg in the Champions League. Nobody will remember this, but it was in 2008 to bring back to the noise. It was sort of like, a volley that just skidded across the surface and it, 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 he's a player that looks beautiful whilst he's playing the game but his goals to me never just they never recaptured that beauty they're always fairly ugly finishes and that's a good mark of a, a centre forward where I think it's sort of jarring to see a player like him and the way he moves and sort of the aloofness about him to say oh ordinary strikers goals like that for me took me out of the moment a little bit and I think that is the mark of a good forward where he just scores in almost any situation Talking of another man, this is probably one of my most disagreed ones <laughs> suggested here uh, from at Adigun for all on Twitter. He says, Wayne Rooney. And for me, it's like the David Beckham conversation a couple of weeks back. For me, if anything, he's the most underrated of certain category, like he's one of the most underrated Premier League strikers of all time. He might not have a golden boot to his name, which for me is more of an underachievement. Also, he was, he was playing in the age of... Uh, a Didier Drogba, a Robin Van Persie, a, a Thierry Henry. And in some season, he might have particularly low numbers. But for me, Wayne Rooney was more of... It's hard to... I, I would not describe him as a complete forward because he would be played out of position so often that he would do multiple jobs at once. He was sacrificed out of position so much. When Cristiano Ronaldo was revered as the best, best player in the Premier League, Wayne Rooney would have to do a job on the left, on the right. Say, for example, 2009 Champions League final, Wayne Rooney would be on the left. Whereas Ronaldo, that would usually be his position, but because it was such a big game, Rooney would go out of position, Ronaldo would go up top. He's one of the better scorers that this league has ever seen in terms of the Premier League. He's number two or three He's between him and Andy Cole. I should have really checked the uh, 100 club list before I uh, went to do this show, but he's, he's scored... But, 180 plus goals in the Premier League and across a 15 year not even that 14 
13, 12 year spell in the Premier League. That's pretty special if you ask me. Obviously, the scorer of great goals as well. You've got the halfway line goals for Man United against West Ham, for Everton, maybe against West Ham again. Um, it was definitely Everton in his later years. And then you've got the, of course, bicycle kick against Man City, which showed the instinctiveness of him because there was a little deflection on the cross. If there's no deflection, he heads it in. And I've no doubt about that because around that time, the 2010s, he was scoring headers for fun. And that's another facet of him. When Ronaldo left, he then became a penalty box striker. He became a poacher almost. And those years, it's no wonder that when Ronaldo left, he scored an amazing amount of goals. He had that time, the, the season two seasons after Ronaldo left where he wanted to leave himself and he wasn't applying himself as much but then he came back the following season and scored 20 odd goals in the league and those were two of his better seasons and it goes to show that when he had that broken foot against Bayern Munich he was Man United's main man and when he's gone obviously you don't have Ronaldo there as well United's season sort of fell away they lose to Chelsea, they lose to Bayern Munich they're out of both of those competitions and end up trophyless that season or they would have won the League Cup wouldn't they in 2010 but it's the League Cup after what they'd achieved a couple of years prior is nothing really. And um, for me, that's when you see the true skill of Wayne Rudolph. You can't go without mentioning the uh, the volley of Newcastle, which in a way should, when he was angry and when he had something to rally against, I thought he was at his best. And for me, you say Thierry Henry, you say Sergio Aguero, Alan Shearer, Wayne Rooney deserves to be in that conversation as well as one of the better uh, Premier League forwards that this country's ever seen, this competition's ever seen. And without further ado, Tari also asks, um, also says Alan Shearer. Um, yeah, this is one I, I'm not too... I can see the possible argument, right? The only possible argument I can see is he didn't win enough. Um, and again, he, I think for Alan Shearer, he won, he won the Premier League. So he won, he won the Premier League with Blackburn Rovers. He didn't win anything else in his career. Fair enough. That's fine. But like Harry Kane, I think when you score the level of goals that he scored, 260 in the Premier League, you go you go beyond the overrated threshold and you can no longer be... It's like Lionel Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo. They score so many goals. And even irrespective of what they win, irrespective of even up until this summer, Lionel Messi had never won anything for Argentina. Still one of the best goal scorers, best players that you've ever seen. So it gets to a point where you think you can't be overrated. Yeah, he didn't win anything, but at the end of the day, he made a personal choice in, it would have been 96, when he left Blackburn to go to Newcastle. So flip it, if he'd have gone to Manchester United, he'd have won everything you could possibly win from this game. Maybe not internationally, but domestically and continentally for his club, he would have done. And it's just that personal choice that at the end of the day, he wanted to go to Newcastle and that's, you know, that's fine. You know, you, you have free will in this world and he, he wanted, it's like, I don't know who, what player said it, maybe Francesco Totti, maybe Shearer himself, to win one trophy with the hometown club, the club that you actually love is worth 10, one with anybody else. It may have been Totti who said that, and I agree, and that's obviously what Alan Shearer went for and almost happened in in 97, and he got achingly close to the FA Cup a couple of years running, didn't he, for Newcastle, one of which against Man United, who he could have, could have achieved. And potentially another argument, he did score quite a lot of his goals in the early to mid-90s for Blackburn and then Newcastle before the league was becoming this powerhouse that it did in the early 2000s when the league was easier. But 
I don't believe those arguments whatsoever, really, like I say. If you've got 260 goals in any league, you're not overrated. Um, He's more of a traditional centre-forward, isn't he, really? And perhaps he has aged not as finely as other centre-forwards of the 90s and the 2000s, but still, I think, put him in goal, put him in front in 2021, it'd bag 20, 25 goals easily. And for that, I don't think he's overrated in the slightest. Um, another one here, Didier Drogba, says uh, Lewis 31 Clark. And he also says, take away the Cups and the Champions League. He had two good seasons in the Premier League. So I can only assume here from Lewis that um, the two seasons that he meant here were two good seasons were the Golden Boot ones, the ones that he won the Golden Boot 2006-07 and 2009-10. And I'm... Not inclined to agree with that either, really, because if you if you take his first two seasons in the Premier League for Chelsea, yeah, he scored 10 goals and then 12 in the other one, I think, in the league. So in all competitions, he would have scored nearer 15, 20, maybe even 25 if he had a good spell in the like the League Cup or the FA Cup, whatever, which he uh, scored winning goals in those games. So I think a uh, big game player is only for Chelsea. Peter Osgood, who scored loads of goals in finals. I think Didier Drogba goes beyond that for me. Um, in terms of the huge goals that he would score in a Chelsea shirt it, in, in any era for any English team dropped the amount of important goals that he scored was quite frankly ridiculous even to stretch that to the league for example 2010 scores the winning goal against Manchester United which in April with about was it five six games to go wins them the league you've got his goal against Liverpool which <laughs> outrageous when he turns Jamie Carrigan and funds it into the top corner Outrageous bit of skill. 2007 League Cup final scores the winner there. 2007 FA Cup final scores the winner there. But it's not against like dodgy clubs. It's Arsenal and Man United of 2007 who were entrenched in the top four. And then you've got the 2012 Champions League final. I know you say take away the Cups and the Champions League, but I don't think you can take away the Cups and the Champions League. And even if you do, you've got a three-time Premier League winner there who's in the 100 clubs. So he's consistently scoring goals in the league, consistently scoring goals outside of that for Chelsea, winning them the Champions League, last kick of his first spell, wins the Champions League, comes back to Chelsea, wins the league again. So four-time Premier League winner. I was wrong on that one, because he had that second spell. So to say he's overrated, I think he's um, vastly underappreciating the quality of the man. The, a lot of people tar Harry Kane with a brush, like bottles it on big occasions, which yeah, he may not have scored in a final, Didier Drogba, though, scored in almost every final he played in and still gets tired with being overrated. So it's, it's a fine line to tread, it seems, um, being overrated and that. But uh, another suggestion, which one that I'm probably closer to the opinion of, is Patamon Fan, Patamon Fan 1991. He suggests Peter Crouch. And to an extent, I think he is because he's unique in terms of his physical prowess. He's, He's unique in that, so he's going to be held to a higher regard if he then performs to, sort of say, a middling to good level as opposed to somebody who's performing to a great level. And for a time, I think in the mid to late noughties, we were holding Crouch up to an enormous level. Obviously, you got the robot dance as well, which kicks him into another gear almost. And I think he did, for a time, I think, become a novelty to an extent because of his size and maybe his personality as well, a um, big personality very funny guy, an amazing, uh, amazingly funny guy. It seems 
outside of the pitch as well. That seems to overrate him a little bit, but I don't think he is overrated because, look, he's in the 100 club, for example. He scores some world-class goals, the one against Manchester City. I mean, if if I don't, I'm not sure if that one goal this season should have done. If it didn't, it should have done. Um, obviously, you got the overhead kick. It may have been in a Champions League game, but still, you can't just boundaries of a, a Premier League here. That was just incredible Champions League night for Liverpool. Scored, I think he's got a hat trick against Arsenal once, and you know, the, to do that, it's not a fluke. Across such a long career, 15, 20 years almost, he was in the Premier League, not played at joke clubs. Tottenham in the their only season in the Champions League at that point he was there he was the one scoring goals against Inter Milan he was the one scoring the winning goal against AC Milan in the knockout phase so Tottenham big six team by that point definitely he was there up front for Liverpool before that he was there up front and let's not forget when he was playing for Stoke Stoke were a solidified top half team and he was playing every week scoring those fantastic goals like the one against um like the one against Manchester City. And I do think, yeah, he does get... His, probably his level does get inflated because of his uniqueness, but I think the quality that he had stands on its own for me and for me, on the whole, doesn't get overrated or is not overrated. And PatamonFan1991 also suggests Mario Balotelli and this is probably the first one that I could probably get behind. But even then, I think... With a lot of uh, Mario Balotelli and our next pick as well, uh, multiple suggestions for our next pick, um, I think it's more an underachievement rather than an overrating. I think he's probably, Mario Balotelli, this is underachieved everywhere where he's gone to the extent that he's now playing in Turkey and he's still under 30. I think he's probably on the knuckle, but I think he's around 30. He's underachieved everywhere, except for maybe that one summer in Euro 2012 and that one game perhaps with... um, with Italy against Germany where he scores those two invaluable goals in the semi-final yeah they'd go on to lose the game but it's Spain in 2012 so it's you kind of accept that and that's fine so it's not really a Premier League thing it's not really a Man City thing that he underachieved he won the treble with Inter Milan but these stories come out with um, Jose Mourinho that he obviously is renowned notorious for why always me? That sort of thing. Obviously, the fireworks before the Manchester derby in 2012, that huge celebration. He's probably known more for moments rather than a consistent sort of ability. You got the shoulder um, outside one yard to score that game. You got the back heel for Man City in a pre-season friendly, which he gets then hauled off for it. Very how much had a love-hate relationship with Roberto Mancini from the outside, at least. Um, I obviously there's somewhere in there for me. I think there's an incredible talent and I just don't think we we got to see it a whole lot in the public eye in matches, which obviously is where it counts. And I think akin to Berbatov, really, I think there is this perceived thing that he's, he's lazy, which I don't think he is, because when he's on it, he was definitely on it. I mean, that goal against that goal against Germany, not only is it a fantastic finish, but look at where he picks up the ball, he picks it up inside the centre circle or there or thereabouts sprints with it and the power to put it into the top corner the swerve on it was just that was one of my favourite goals in an international tournament to do it in a semi-final against such a good quality opponent for Balotelli I think for me it shows that the sprinkling's in there I just don't think we got to see it enough and for me I think for Balotelli it's more of an underachievement as opposed to um, people overrating him I'm not saying he's like top 10 Premier League striker of all time or anything like that nothing close to it 
but he had that little bit of quality sometimes. Let's not forget he gave Sergio Aguero the ball and um, that was his only assist in a Man City shirt. Maybe that is part of the problem um, in terms of consistency with him. Obviously, he's by no means a, a complete forward or a playmaking forward that's coming to oh, this is all the rage now. But he's, he's, for me, there's definitely sprinklings of something there. And yeah, he's not an overrating, more of an underachievement. And without further ado, good um, transition here. Michael Owen, suggested by Jacko9492 on Twitter and FT Law Podcast on Twitter as well. FT Law also says, I judge by how you are rated by individual awards and international caps. Michael Owen shouldn't have won a Ballon d'Or or made the Premier League team of the decade in the 2000s, I think is what he said there. And um, I think... Along the same lines as Balotelli, I think it's underachievement rather than an overrating. Also, you've got to factor in injury, stunted his career massively, and as a result, you get a very different player sort of after 2003. And I think with that fresh in our mind, it's like a film. If you go see a film and the ending sort of fizzles out, you'll look a lot, look upon it less favourably, as opposed to, you know, think of Michael Owen in 97, think of Michael Owen in 98. 98 golden boot winner, 99 a golden boot winner, that goal against Argentina this season that he won the cup treble with Liverpool, that was him at his absolute peak. Unfortunately, obviously the peak got cut short, muscle injuries absolutely haunted him and for a player who had the turn of pace like Michael Owen, the type of football he was, type of forward he was, that was always going to, a muscle injury which would have psychologically at least taken an a yard off him and obviously the, that yard would be the difference between what we see after 2003 2004-ish obviously you've got the injury in the 2006 World Cup which takes a hell of a long time to get over when it comes to Newcastle still a Premier League winner of course um, multiple Golden Boot winner and on that Ballon d'Or note if you think about it's usually a Ballon d'Or it's not entirely fair most of the time it's usually reserved for somebody who won a major won one of the one or two of the big big trophies like a, a an international trophy obviously in 2001 I think there was a Copa America that year I think it was won by Brazil if I'm not mistaken maybe in Colombia I'm not too sure about that one but in a year where these sort of like not the typical choices for an international trophy one say for example in 2004 Andrei Shevchenko won it um based seemingly off not, and obviously 2004 Porto won the Champions League so it was going to be a difficult decision or an out there decision seemingly for the Ballon d'Or because it's like when somebody wins two, three big trophies, like a Jorginho this year, he's then thrust to the Ballon d'Or pecking order. Um, and in sort of lean years where notoriously the, the typical clubs don't win the big things, you get players that shine through. I don't think Michael Owen was that in 2001. Looking back, you think, oh, that looks a bit odd. Um, like in 99, for example, I, my gripe is, obviously Rivaldo wins a Copa America. Um David Beckham finished second. David Beckham won the treble. I think he would have deserved to win it. Well, I mean, that's just personal bias for me. Um, but uh, Michael, looking back for younger people, I think Michael Owen probably would be like one of those, like, eh, that guy on BT Sport, which that's a lot of bubbles. But it's like when he was at that peak, he was easily the, one of the most frightening forwards for a defence in Europe and would have been like when people talk about, you know, like the star boys of Foden, Fatty, Greenwood, Pedri, Haaland, Mbappe, etc, etc, etc. Owen probably, Owen would have been in that. I'll put it this way, he was in a BBC, what is it, CBB 
sea show called Boy Wonder, and that was sort of like maybe maybe in the vernacular at that time. But Owen was definitely put upon that pedestal, and I think it's rather injury rather than his own ability which curtailed that. And you know, I think if anything, now he's rather underrated because his injury-free career is a lot less than his carrying injury career, his hamstring injuries, ACL, that sort of thing. Obviously, with the nature of being English, which goes for Harry Kane, which goes for Alan Shearer, I guess, in certain senses, you are overrated. But I don't think that's a true reflection on the player themselves. And I think it's along the lines of Balotelli of an underachievement purely because of how hot Michael Owen started, who quite simply ridiculous. And obviously burst onto the scene quite literally with the, well, not literally, obviously, in the 98 World Cup. I think it's more of an injury and there's always an excuse to be made obviously maybe I'm making a lot of excuses myself here and um, I think it's more injury curtailment rather than an overrating uh, but we'll end this this section of the show with a couple of my suggestions and um, we've got Kevin Davis who I'm obviously it's got a lot of goals for Bolton and very much of his time maybe he's more antiquated aged not as well as some of the other centre-forwards. Um, Andy Carroll never really cut it for me. He obviously hampered a little bit by a £35 million price tag. And for a time when Newcastle was, he was that sort of um, goal-getter and he could have actually, if I think if he had stayed at Newcastle, he'd have had a much better career, but never really hit those heights. And even as a Man United fan suggesting this one, Anthony Martial, I think by some sections of the Man United fan base is vastly overrated. And when you see the likes of Marcus Rashford, Mason Greenwood, who to me are better finishers, the young, younger, hungry, seem to be all-round better footballers. And obviously when you're comparing them to two talents like that, obviously it's kind of harsh on Martial, but he's a player, he's a really streaky goal scorer for me. When he's on it, he's definitely not. I won't say he's unstoppable because he isn't. But he, it's the application. It's almost like a Balotelli thing, really. It's just he. Maybe it's a biased thing for me, where he's, he just frustrates me to a point because he's got all these quality players in the front line at Manchester United. Obviously, there's that aching to be good again from a United standpoint as well. That just frustrates me when he, like so many others, like when he scores that Liverpool goal his first game when you think oh wow he's a player and then torments Virgil van Dijk the second game even in a draw but still when he torments Virgil van Dijk the second game and you, you see what Virgil van Dijk's become it's frustrating that um, when you then see the player who for three four well he had a, he's had good spells here and there but it's consistency again like Mario Balotelli that frustrates you and Mario Balotelli even as a United fan frustrates me um, when he was playing for City, when he's playing for Liverpool, because you think you could have been so much more, unfortunately. And that is that. Those were the most overrated Premier League strikers, according to my Twitter followers, at least, anyway. So without further ado, let's uh, leave you with the following advertisements, and after that, we'll be back with a look at West Ham in the 2000s. Welcome back. We're going to discuss West Ham in the 2000s, but first the 90s, which teams in the Premier League had a really good 90s. So you'd say 
Blackburn, they won the Premier League, of course, Arsenal won the Premier League, Man United won the rest of the Premier Leagues, didn't they? And um, Liverpool had a good couple of uh, cup runs, didn't obviously underachieve compared to the 80s, but they were never going to replicate that. Um, Leeds were gearing up to have a good 2000s after uh, finishing the decade quite well. Newcastle obviously had a good couple of good uh, years under Keegan, under Dalglish, got to a couple of cup finals. Um, Chelsea did well in cup competitions, not so much in the league. And then you've got West Ham for me. Um, the academy was arguably the best in the country, got to two youth cup finals. The one, the 1996 vintage, had the likes of Rio Ferdinand, Frank Lampard in it. The 1999 team, who went that one step further and actually won the youth cup, carrying the likes of Jermaine Defoe, Joe Cole, Michael Carrick, Glenn Johnson around that sort of time. Anyway, and West Ham had their best Premier League finish in 1999, their best finish to a league season since they finished third in 1986, and which meant they were getting to Europe for the first time since 1981, a UEFA Cup second round exit to Stau Bucharest. Regardless, you got the likes of Di Canio Canute up top, and even in spite of the likes of Rio Ferdinand leaving for Leeds in 2000, becoming the most um, expensive defender on earth, and Frank Lampard leaving for Chelsea around a similar time, you still got this decent top half squad. So you got Harry Redknapp was the the main curator of this. Joining in 1994, he would leave in 2001 with a good with a good seventh finish, seventh place finish, or there or thereabouts after the fifth place in 1999. And after that, Glenn Roder comes in. Unfortunately, his time at the club is curtailed with health problems towards the end, which leaves Trevor Brook in an interim charge, attempting to steer what had become really an abandoned ship, and steer them to safety in what was uh, an interim position for Brookin, of course, played during the 70s and 80s and won a cup with West Ham, of course. But the legendary Hammer couldn't manage to steer that ship the correct way round and West Ham go down in 2003, despite the likes of Michael Carrick, Glenn Johnson, Jermaine Defoe. The first two leave, Jermaine Defoe attempts to stay on in the EFL, which quickly quickly follows the likes of Michael Carrick and Glenn Johnson, who go to other London clubs, Carrick to Spurs, Johnson to Chelsea. All three of those, of course, would join the likes of Frank Lampard, Rio Ferdinand, Joe Cole, who would also be away to Chelsea after relegation, in becoming England regulars, or at least fully-fledged internationals. So then West Ham, finally, they come up after playoff heartache, then they beat Preston in 2005. We're a very, very different-looking squad. There is a Ferdinand in the back line, but it is Anton Ferdinand, of course, now with his brother Rio at Manchester United, becoming a two-time most expensive defender on earth. Meanwhile, Lampard, of course, at Chelsea, they're both entangled. Rio and Lampard in battles for the Premier League and the Champions League, as opposed to trying to get up into the Premier League via the playoffs. Both would ultimately win European Cups. I would Joe Cole and Lampard win the European Cup in 2012. Rio Ferdinand in 2008, of course. Joe Cole was perhaps first known to me because he was this wonder kid on Championship Manager 2001-2 and... If West Ham got relegated, you could enact a, a release clause at about five million, and for some reason, it almost always seemed to go down. At least on my saves, anyway. And uh, that's probably where I got my affinity to to Joe Cole for for that time. Obviously, you get the England times in the 2006 World Cup, where you have got, to be fair, you've got Joe Cole in the team at left mid. You've got Frank Lampard through the middle, and you've also got Rio Ferdinand at the back. All West Ham legends 
are West Ham graduates. Meanwhile, back at Upton Park, you've got Nigel Riococo, Paul Koncheski, Marlon Harewood of this world. And talking about 2006, West Ham's first end of their first season back in the top flight, finished 10th. They would also make a cup final as well. And for a long time, though, in that, and because as a Man United fan, I was supporting Liverpool in the, I was supporting, sorry, I was supporting West Ham. I wasn't supporting Liverpool. <laughs> Definitely not in the pub nearby my house. Um, I was spotting West Ham and I thought they definitely had a good chance after a decent enough season. Dean Ashton up front, of course, as well. And they led 2-0. They led 3-1. And, of course, in the end, we know what happened. It was the Gerrard finally wouldn't let that lie. Scoring that 90th minute goal, which was just ridiculous. Obviously, the penalty shootout win as well then for Liverpool put them up there. And in the end, it turned out to be a bit of a honeymoon period, really, for West Ham. They couldn't keep up with the Premier League, that second season syndrome. But they wouldn't go down. It's potentially one of the greatest escapes for me uh, from relegation in 2007. But I was, uh, yeah, as we know now, it's slightly tainted, slightly illegal because of uh, Carlos Tevez's influence on the team towards the last sort of eight or nine weeks of the season, the goals that he scored. I mean, I remember that lovely free kick that he scored. I think it was against Spurs. So instead of demotion, instead of points deductions, that Sheffield United might have wanted because they went down instead. Uh, West Ham got a very, very hefty fine. I think it was record-breaking for the league at some time. Um, but they would return to the EFL under Anvram Grant. And then in the 2010s, you've got the likes of Sam Aldice, David Moyes, probably the closest that West Ham have got to replicating the good times of the late 90s, early 2000s. For me, I think that it seems as though West Ham are destined to be a team that will always underachieve and the stakes have got a little bit more, especially with the 60,000-seater and obviously a 60,000-seater that they don't flat out own as well. And the location, being in London, very good, even if it is East London, which I've never been to East London, maybe a very good place, people might say otherwise, but the location being in London, the stage should now be for this young, hungry, unproven Premier League talent the strategy in recent years, at least, of signing Czech players. You've got Thomas Suchek, Vladimir Sufal, and underappreciated talent. So Craig Dawson, Mikel Antonio, of course, and um, Declan Rice, who spilled out from a different different youth setup with Chelsea, of course. And I can't see why West Ham can't be one of the forerunners in the Premier League into the 2020s, rather than this, what preceded it, in the London Stadium era of consistent splurging of cash, you've got even the, like, the likes of Andrei Yarmolenko, one of the more one of the more, the more positive of these signings. You've got Felipe Anderson, you've got Sebastian Haller, of course, as well, who just don't really hit the mark. And then you see them sort of sacrificed for a for a Sufal, for a Suchek, for a Mikel Antonio, for a for Pablo Fernals, even Jesse Lingard on his uh, loan, underappreciated, of course, at the time at Manchester United. And that meant that all these ingredients, instead of the consistent splurging of cast, just because you've got it, has seen West Ham return to the top six um, this summer uh, for the first time since 1999. And it looks for the first time since probably Harry Redknapp, because even in the days of Alan Pardew getting to the cup final, it, it was very brief with Allardyce, I don't think the fans were on board despite a couple of top half finishes there. For now, it seems getting back into Europe, getting back into the group stages of of Europe as well. I mean, for the for a time in the twenty tens, they were getting into the qualifying rounds of, of Europe, but they were kept getting knocked out by Romanian teams. 
um, Astra Georgi, I think, eliminated them twice. Um, so these group stages of a guaranteed group stage of a European competition, you've got a, a different sort of setup. You've got a manager I think has finally gotten back to being appreciated after obviously the the spells at Sunderland, at Manchester United, at Real Sociedad, and David Moyes. And we know from his earlier spells in the 2000s that he, he knows how to work with limited resources and get up, get a team up there to the Champions League, which Everton really around that time had no right to getting up to and staying there, which you'd seen the likes of Aston Villa drop away, seen the likes of Leeds, especially explosively drop away. And David Moyes in that sense has a has a has an ability there to get West Ham up there and keep them there, a bit like what Leicester have done. Although, of course, that was <laughs> done to an extreme, wasn't it, in 2016? And they've stuck around since after levelling out. West Ham could definitely... There's nothing to say that West Ham can't do something. Maybe not of the same ilk of winning the Premier League, but it wouldn't be as big of a shock as when Leicester did it in 2016. So who knows on that ex- extent there, really. But West Ham are definitely probably in the best position they've been in since the late 90s in the Premier League era to achieving something substantial, something great, in my opinion anyway. And next week we'll be looking at, rather, the other end of the spectrum in terms of a big club that seemed quite hopeless, not to say West Ham aren't a big club, but in terms of relativity, Liverpool, and we'll be looking at them post Rafael Benitez, maybe the George Hicks, <laughs> Hicks and Gillette era, we'll be looking at them. So post-2009, the administration almost years of Liverpool before, of course. Saviour in parts, Brennan Rogers, saviour, of course, more so, Jurgen Klopp. And we'll also be discussing your favourite or your biggest Champions League shocks ever. Of course, timely reminder that we are a sports social podcast network production now we'll be on there as well as all the usual places where you get your podcasts of course we are also on patreon that's patreon.com forward slash what if football where we've got a couple of nostalgic sounding podcasts a bit like this one if you're into that sort of thing also we cover modern day football on there as well previewing and reviewing the the week's football in action and of course youtube where you presumably know us from originally doing what if scenario seven days a week but until then next time you hear this voice next time you See one of our videos. See you Sports Social Podcast Network.